Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Danny Haifong, who is an activist, journalist, and scholar, and for the last five years has been a weekly contributor at Black Agenda Report. His articles have also appeared in the American Herald Tribune, Mint Press News, and Counterpunch. His work was featured in former Congresswoman and Green Party presidential candidate Cynthia McKinney's latest book, How the U.S. Creates Bleephole Countries. Haifong recently co-authored the book American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, a people's history of fake news from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny Haifong, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thank you for having me. I highly recommend your latest book uh, to everyone listening. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Why, Really back to the Revolutionary War, American Exceptionalism goes? Yes, so... American exceptionalism, and, and the reason why we wrote the book was to highlight how the ideologies of American exceptionalism, the ideology that presumes the U.S. is a force for good in the world, that it's a superior society to all others, and that every aspect of the ruling system is designed to promote freedom and democracy, both at home and abroad, um, and American innocence, the ideology that uh, assigns benevolent attention to the imperial and genocidal actions of the United States. We wrote this book to highlight how these ideologies have told a narrative about the United States, which has made it extremely difficult to challenge the crimes that the system that governs the United States and the imperialist system, the system of war, racism, capitalism, how these interlock systems have been really difficult to challenge because these ideologies presume this inherent goodness, this inherent civilizing force. Um, that the United States supposedly represents. And this goes all the way back to the origins myth of the United States, which is all about the uh, heroic colonialist, settler colonialist, uh, slave-owning class, how they um, uh, waged a heroic rebellion against the British crown, which thereby created the most advanced uh, so-called democratic system in the history of the planet. This is how the um, origins myth goes, but if we actually look at great work from people like Gerald Horn, we know that actually the intentions and the interests behind the so-called Revolutionary War were a little less uh, benevolent indeed. Uh, the slave-owning class had all the intention to maintain the system of slavery when in uh, Britain and in the British Empire. There were so many factors that were leading to an incipient trend toward abolition of the slave trade, at the very least in the colonies um, in the Caribbean. And this struck fear in the eyes of people like George Washington and like the founding fathers who decided that it was time to create an independent republic. And so we, we can really trace this myth of American exceptionalism all the way back to the founding of the United States and how that story has been told ever since it has occurred. The revolution at the same time, did it not opened up the, the Western frontier, making it more of an imperialist project than an anti-imperialist one? Exactly. It was, it was really about expansion um, of the slave system, but also of the system that wiped away um, countless millions of indigenous uh, peoples and nations, which... Uh, the British and other colonial powers who were at war with each other prior to 1776 
um, there were treaties that uh, protected some indigenous groups that were loyal to dip-bearing colonial powers. And the, the colonialists here in the colonies, uh, the 13 colonies, many of them wanted to weaken the British crown in order to expand westward and southward. So that was a, a huge impetus as to why there was this need. And it's right in the Declaration of Independence um, in terms of labeling savage, uh, rebellious indigenous people as one of the gravest threats to the security of the so-called uh, democratic republic. So how does innocence survive not only that, but 200 years more and uh, an empire of bases around the world and the notion that if the United States didn't do it, somebody else would have to wage all these uh, murderous wars. How, how does that fit with, with innocence? So innocence is the defense uh, mechanism of American exceptionalism and the ruling elites that constantly stuff it down our throats. I think uh, one of the ways in which this innocence is maintained is through a constant ideological assault in all spheres of U.S. society, especially whether we're looking at schools and especially the corporate media um, and, and anywhere that we go we are constantly reminded, whether it's through the worship of the troops who fight uh, the wars abroad for the U.S. ruling class, or whether it is completely rewriting uh, international law itself. Uh, during the Obama administration, when the U.S. was poising itself to invade Libya, what the Obama administration did was to say that it wasn't a war at all, because uh, invading Libya was not going to and did not uh, ultimately sacrifice any U.S. troops. And so by uh, inculcating this notion of U.S. superiority, that its citizens are inherently more superior and that their lives are ultimately more valuable, and of course this uh, mainly has to do with white Americans, that we are in effect innocent no matter what we do abroad, no matter what the United States does abroad. And I think our book really helps us challenge this notion of we, that the United States and its system of imperialism is ultimately to be identified with. Because I think that one of the things that is so masterfully done by the ruling class is to promote innocence and to promote American exceptionalism as a means to create the basis for a cross-class alliance between uh, poor whites, between whites of all classes, but anyone who is willing to join in the cause of defending the so-called indispensable nation. That is, I think, one of the reasons why, if not the major reason, why we see even on the left that so many have trouble challenging the wars and challenging the crimes that really get to the root of what the United States is all about and what its social relations are really predicated upon. And I think that um, we... Um, you know, as anti-war activists, as people who are trying to uh, create a situation where social transformation can really occur, uh, have to be able to challenge this notion that uh, there are crimes that are beyond criticism. And I think American exceptionalism and innocence are the ideologies that, cre that create that environment where it's impossible to really have a conversation on the left about uh, issues such as the invasion of Libya, or, um, you know, even some of the things that Tulsi Gabbard is bringing up 
uh, are being completely excluded from the political narrative in the United States because uh, there is such an impetus among the ruling elite to uh, to promote the United States as despite Trump, despite whatever blemishes occur, that you know this country is exceptional and that it's worth preserving. We are speaking with Danny Haifong, who's the co-author of a wonderful new book. I highly recommend it, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, A People's History of Fake News from the Revolutionary War to the War on Terror. Danny, it seems like to me, uh, beyond the the major uh, failure to oppose U.S. militarism, there's, there's also a culture in the United States that fails to look to anywhere else on earth to learn anything. So we have conversations about solving uh, health coverage problems uh, as if a new innovation were needed uh, because there's no no looking at what other countries have done. Or should we ban guns or not ban guns? What would happen? Nobody knows. It's never been tried because no one looks at any other countries. Uh, am I... Am I right that there's a there's a problem here resulting from American exceptionalism? Yes, uh, American exceptionalism completely isolates. It's one of the arguments we make in the book. It completely isolates even the most well-intentioned people, those who are seeking to create real material change in the interests of the masses. Even they have difficulty understanding how to do that because one in the United States. It is true. There has never been a universal health care system in the United States. Um, they're, they're, the United States is the most anti-socialist nation, perhaps, in the history of, uh, of the planet. And that has a long history that we go into, uh, especially in Chapter 9, where we talk about the repression of socialists and communists and uh, black revolutionaries um, in the service of the so-called free speech narrative. Um, and we... Uh, you know, we really have trouble with uh, uh, looking outwards, looking outside of the colonial borders of the United States, because internationalism has been such a threat to the interests of the ruling class here. That, again, goes back to when African slaves uh, were aligning themselves with opposing colonial powers like the British crown in order to secure freedom from their enslavement. Uh, prior to 1776. And we uh, can trace this development all the way through the history of the United States, where there were nations that uh, abroad, especially, that were organizing themselves on different principles and different economic arrangements, uh, socialist in character, such as Cuba, which we talk about in the book, where if we actually look at this history and we look at this ongoing reality that indeed people all over the world have been engaged in a process of attempting to meet their needs and attempting to um, create relationships of solidarity amongst all people, that this process would, is really in the interest of the majority of the U.S. population, half of which is uh, making $30,000 a year or less, uh, which by U.S. standards is, is poverty. And so uh, it, there is a problem when American exceptionalism is able to create this basis of superiority, a largely white superiority, which says that the United States, regardless of its flaws, regardless of the mistakes it has made, and again, this is American innocence at work, uh, that the United States still is the model that people living in this country should aspire to. 
when in fact imperialism, capitalism, and racism ultimately serves the interests of very few people. It serves the interests of the very rich, of those who own property, and of those who control the global oligarchic capitalist system that we're living in, where five individuals own half the world's wealth. That's the reality of what this system creates. Um, and I think more and more people, one of the reasons we wrote this book, is more and more people are at least seeing that uh, there has to be some significant change uh, to, that needs to occur in this country. Um, a lot, Many of these folks are choosing electoral routes, such as the Sanders campaign. Um, but we really wrote this book because we felt like developments like Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, and even the Sanders phenomenon that is continuing to this period really show that there's a discontent emerging. But that discontent will ultimately be funneled into acceptable means of protest if their, uh, if their vision for a new society, for social change, is corrupted and um, ultimately controlled by the desire to reform a system that's uh, right now irredeemable. And I think that, um, you know, that is one of the most critical messages of, of our book. Uh, very well said. Our guest is Danny Haifung. Danny, when I give speeches to crowds in the United States and I ask, you know, can you raise your hand and name a war in the history of the world that's been just or justified? Uh, I've never had anyone say the American Revolution. Um, and, and I've almost always had almost everyone say the same thing. You can, you can probably guess what it is. World War II. Yeah, so I, I I think your book does a very good job of 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 bringing out World War II. Why why is World War II so central to to the the myths of exceptionalism and innocence? I think there are many reasons. I think at that period the United States was really uh, becoming the central and focal point of imperialism worldwide. It was becoming the uh, most advanced producer uh, of military technology and military weaponry, and World War II ultimately helped the United States through things like the Lend-Lease system, really helped the United States develop this um, extremely dangerous uh, infrastructure of warfare. And so that was very valuable to uh, the oligarchs. I mean, many of the founding um, foundational industrialists of the United States threw in their weight Hitler prior to uh, the uh, U.S. entrance into the war because of how profitable it was to spark a global war between Nazism and communist Soviet Union, and how ultimately the destruction of the Soviet Union was at the root of all of the U.S.'s moves in, in the Second World War. But I think the narrative that the U.S. saved the world from fascism is so incredibly um, important because, one, it justifies the bases of future wars to this day. Even though Iraq, we can go Afghanistan, we can go down the line of dozens and dozens of U.S. interventions that have been complete and utter massacres and complete and utter uh, disasters for the people who are ultimately uh, receiving, on the receiving end of these wars. Even to this day, people like Paul Krugman, journalists across the New York Times, so-called journalists across the New York Times and the corporate media, they still point to World War II as that moment where the U.S. was able to show through war that it can uphold its values, and those values are indeed superior. 
it values of liberty, democracy, etc. And then there's uh, the uh, need to show the people of the United States, especially especially working class people, um, that U.S. wars are indeed connected to the material conditions that uh, existed at the time. So there's this uh, myth of the golden age, which was really a golden age for mainly white workers and mainly workers that were struggling to form unions, and there was a huge resistance movement uh, led a lot, led largely by socialists to develop a strong labor movement in this country at that time. But the ruling class doesn't care about that. What they care about is showing that the rising wages, that the um, you know the superiority of the United States in terms of global GDP at the time, that all of that is possible again. And so in order to uh, in order to create a consensus among the U.S. population that maybe wars aren't in our interest, but there's also the possibility that they could bring material benefits, in order to forward that message, there has to be an example. And World War II is the most distorted example that the U.S. ruling class uses in order to build that consensus. So there are many factors to it, but in the end, uh, the reality on the ground of what was happening during that period, what the United States' elites were doing um, to manipulate developments on the ground during the war, but also what happened afterward. Uh, the United States was in the throes of Jim Crow and was in the throes of uh, one of the most defining periods of its history um, in terms of just brutal racial oppression um, and brutal class oppression in a lot of ways. Um, that the myth that the U.S. was some more benevolent uh, figure in that period is still just that. It's still a myth. Um, but it's a powerful one, and the most powerful one, because I think people in the United States really do want, many of them, really do want what they believe was in existence at that time, and that was a stronger social welfare system and a... Uh, foreign policy that they could be proud of. And those two things are not, um, um, are at this time at least, are not connected to each other. Um, but because the United States is founded upon those uh, heinous uh, social relations where there has always been a need to pacify, especially white Americans, um, when it comes to these crimes, uh, that that tends to be the biggest folly and the biggest challenge that we that we come up against in our anti-war um, activism. And, and it does seem that if you pretend World War II was something it wasn't, and that it's sort of still current, uh, all sins are washed away. If the U.S. has the most people in prison, if U.S. police are killing hundreds of people every year, if refugee kids are being locked in cages, you can just say World War II, and the United States mm-hmm. is, 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 can't be doing anything fascistic because it's anti-fascist. Exactly, and look at how many times the United States, uh, the military-industrial complex, the corporate media, how many times do they equate those they don't like with Hitler, those they don't like with fascism, those they don't like with um, these... Uh, benign uh, uh, characterizations of what a dictator is every, um, in order to justify time. exactly, in order to justify their invasion Gaddafi, Assad Maduro now in Venezuela it's, um, you know, it's a constant incessant propaganda mill to tell us that indeed the values that the United States 
uh, was motivated by during World War II, which was a lie. The United States was motivated by the interest of profit. That's what its elite, its industrialists, its military um, brass were really interested in, was to come out on top and to come out with uh, hegemony, global hegemony. And that's what happened. And to this day, that continues. But in order to show the masses of the United States that, indeed, values like liberty and democracy and uh, the need to protect human rights around the world, that, um, yes, every time, every time something goes wrong, World War II is evoked. Um, and, and I think we really have a lot, um, we have a lot of debunking to do, and I hope our chapter, Chapter 4, on that question um, really helps activists, scholars, and anyone who is looking to um, really help rewrite that history. Um, and we hope that it helps them. I, I hope so and expect that it will. I, I, I wrote a book called Curing Exceptionalism, and if this book, uh, American Exceptionalism and American Innocence, had been around, I would have said reading it is part of curing exceptionalism. Uh, I recommend that people read it. I, I, I think one of the more important chapters or more interesting to me uh, in your book is the one called Should U.S. Imperialism Matter to Black Lives Matter? Can you talk a little bit about that one? Definitely. Uh, it was one of the, my favorite chapters to write because um, I myself was involved um, in uh, Black Lives Matter activity, especially at its high point. And um, a lot has happened uh, since uh, the uh, killing of um, uh, the killing in Ferguson and Michael Brown in 2014. Uh, we, in that chapter, talk about how the Black Lives Matter movement really did uh, get a lot of momentum in terms of developing a real ideologically advanced for the period um, a perspective on U.S. wars and what the United States was doing abroad, especially in relation to Palestine and U.S. support for Palestine and the need to co- connect the condition of Palestinians to the condition of Black Americans here in the United States. Um, and the Black Lives Matter uh, the movement for Black Lives uh, policy a statement uh, talked about how there was a need to divest from the military budget, um, and that, you know, in order to meet the needs of black people and black futures, that that was something that no other political force um, at that moment, um, outside of the anti-war folks, were saying. And so there was a lot of reasons to be hopeful. But then when Colin Kaepernick uh, sat out the national anthem in the first preseason game in 2016 and ended up being completely blacklisted from the NFL to this day um, because he equated the flag as a representation of the oppression of black people in the United States. Black Lives Matter uh, as a force, as a, as a movement force, was nowhere really to be found in his defense. And so we really wanted to know why that occurred. And so we talked about how you know, American exceptionalism had diverted the conversation about racism and police brutality into acceptable means of protest, into a a bid for national unity, so to speak, and how that had really um, isolated forces in the Black Lives Matter movement who were attempting to bring about a more nuanced analysis of what was going on, while privileging folks who were uh, not interested in talking about uh, U.S. imperialism, talking about 
connections, such as how the NYPD trains in Israel and the United States receives $3.8 billion per year, if not more now, um, in military aid to destroy the lives of Palestinians. And so we really wanted to then talk about, well, then what do we need to do in order to change the situation? Because what what Colin Kaepernick did really spoke to not only how the flag, yes, is drenched in the blood of slavery and, and genocide, but also how and what he did, given how many millions of dollars is funneled into the NFL from the military-industrial complex in this country, how uh, that action was really an action against the war machine. And so what, what, what spirit does he sit in and what legacy is he really... Um, you know, is he really forwarding? And so we talk about the history of black internationalism as a social movement that has been the driving force of social transformation in the United States. And we go over folks like Paul and Islanda Robeson, like Claudia Jones, Malcolm X, and the Black Panther Party to show that, um, you know, efforts like the We Charge Genocide position is still relevant today. And we really need to make the question of international solidarity again um, the rallying cry of all of our movements, but especially movements that seek to uh, address the question of liberation for um, folks like Black America and Indigenous people who you know, are ultimately attacked by the same system, whose the guns of the military-industrial complex around the world are ultimately pointing um, also at uh, Black people in this country as well as all oppressed people who can be considered uh, non-white, um, but especially black people, is the central question here because um, we can go down the line. The 1033 program of the um, you know U.S. Pentagon that funnels uh, millions upon millions of dollars per year in military weaponry to police forces. All of that was central to the development of the Black Lives Matter movement, and so we hope that this chapter will continue that process even as uh, we are challenged with the fact that, sure, Google and corporations have uh, attempted to turn Black Lives Matter into a mainstream movement, a movement that is acceptable and is just a hashtag for political gain. Danny, with just about one minute left, there's a great discussion in the book of charges of ingratitude. Not only is Colin Kaepernick uh, ungrateful, uh, the people of Iraq and Libya and everywhere else are ungrateful. Uh, Can you explain why they're expected to be grateful? Well, they're expected to be grateful because they're expected to fall in line with the notion that the U.S. is a superior society. So whatever happens, even if crimes are being committed against them, whatever happens to them, ultimately for their benefit. Uh, I remember during the Iraq War, I was only 13 years old at the time, with during the 2003 invasion. And I remember that's what a lot of Americans were saying, even in liberal bastions like Cambridge, Massachusetts. They were saying, well, at least it's not Saddam. At least, you know, at least they'll be liberated from a dictator, even if it's not um, Even if they're dead. Know, the best situation. Yeah, exactly. And now we see with the great work of people such as you uh, who have really monitored what has happened. Yeah, we see millions of people have died because of the invasion of Iraq. And the same thing goes for uh, the the original Holocaust here in the United States of African uh, people, that they were expected to 
fall in line because ultimately the civilizing force of the United States um, was more beneficial than where they came from. Uh, ultimately, they were benefiting more from it. So, we of will, course, they were being happy. Yeah. We have to leave it there. Uh, I recommend reading the book uh, to go into to more depth. Danny Haifung is a co-author of American Exceptionalism and American Innocence. Danny, thank you for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thanks so much, David. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.